What's up, everybody? It's time for another Ghost Code Magazine podcast. I'm your host, Keefe. Today's podcast is an interview with Jesse Zaretti of Binary Code. Binary Code's new album, Memento Mori, is out in mid-May. Check it out. On the Ghost Cult Magazine podcast, welcomes in Jesse Zaretti of Binary Code. Jesse, how are you today, man? Good, man. I'm uh, feeling really good with this beautiful weather in Denver. Got blue skies. How's, how's it back home? How's it look back It here? is chilly. There was snow in the Northeast yesterday, although not what? in New York City. Snow in, in Boston, Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, a dusting, and chilly, oh. chilly temperatures. Today, it's beautifully sunny and about 50-something. Okay. See, I like that. That's a good spot for me. I Maybe we're going to get the snow soon here, I guess. Who knows? The whole, yeah. the whole planet is getting rid of us, man. This is we're pur- <laughs> they're pur- It's purging us. That's all right. <laughs> it is all right. We won't Good know times. about it. <laughs> and uh, it's you are like the fifth person either living in or not from Denver, but living in the Denver area in in heavy music that I've talked to in like the last three weeks. Just seemed to be like a run of <laughs> every band, Company of Serpents, Have It <laughs> Yesterday, uh, you know, everybody. So really cool. Um, yeah. Happy to chat with you. Uh, for those that don't follow the Dumb and Dumbest podcast, we just chatted on the Dumb and Dumbest podcast, but uh, your band Binary Code has a brand new album coming out next week, Memento Mori, uh, Latin for the little death or, uh, you know, relating to those matters. And uh, it is a fantastic record. It's a li- it's different from your past work, but it is definitely b- a binary code. You know, it's got the DNA of the band in it, but I love some of the songwriting choices and chances you've taken and i really love this sort of new era of the band with this release thank you so much man it's definitely been um it's been frustrating waiting for it to come out and doing the right things with it but at the same time it's been a little conflicting because of how important the record is to us so it's really cool that people are going to actually get to hear it now and uh see what people think because we're we're very proud of this record um and that's kind of a first for us like we're always proud of what we do in the moment but um this is a record that we finished three years ago almost at this point and i still am feeling the same feelings about it so i hope that helps other people gain a little inspiration to listen to it because i'm still all about the record yeah man like if i hadn't known that from you telling me that this record is was basically done in 2017, I wouldn't have believed it because it sounds fresh and inventive and creative and a lot of different like reference points, but it's also still the band. It's the band. If you've always loved this band, you're going to dig this record. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, some bands are like, we're going to take some left turns on this one. We hope we don't lose everybody, but that's not the case here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the thing about, this band since I started it is that I've never kind of contrived music. It comes out when it comes out. And I think that when you hear binary code, you hear me more than anything, because, you know, like my, my bandmates have changed a lot over time and, you know, Oded's been with me for a decade, almost a decade at this point, but uh, the core of it has just been kind of staying true to my, myself as a person and the music I think that's why I take it so seriously and personally. And it's why I communicate with anybody who enjoys my band, like, like if for some reason tomorrow, all of a sudden we were as big as Lamb of God, I would still treat people the same way as I do now, which is like, I'm just grateful that somebody cares about this band because it really is a representation of who I am as a person, you know? 
Killer, man. Um, so yeah, lots to unpack. Like I said, fantastic record. A uh, lot of progressive metal in here. A lot of like uh, doom, but not like stoner doom, but like really interesting gothic doom, like Catatonia, uh, and, and even some Opeth stuff in there. There's so many uh, flavors. I think probably the song that surprised me the most is the uh, "Those I Sought to Spare" with Jeff Loomis, mm. because very typically a lot of people get L- Loomis is great, right? We're all fans. He's incredible, um, but he's a guy. I think a lot of people get him on the, like they write a certain badass death metal track and then they have jeff do like a very jeff loomis nevermore arch enemy style solo on it because that's what he's does he's a shredder (laughs) it's a beautiful song man thank you man it's um it was a sleeper for all of us um when we finished the record it, it was a favorite for most of us um but and it's not not entirely because of jeff but jeff definitely helped because when we were like, oh, it would be really cool if he laid down. So the way it kind of came together was was interesting. He was at our producer's house, Aaron, in, in uh, Seattle. And uh, he was over there. And I was like, you know, if he's there and you guys are just noodling around and hanging out while Aaron's mixing the record, it'd be really cool to see, like, what he would do. And I got sent a video of Jeff just kind of, like, improvising, which is leagues beyond anything I could do if I spent months at a time trying to figure out what to write. He just improvised perfection basically and then he like laid down this amazing track eventually and to me it sounds like jeff like you know it's him but then i think it also gave jeff an opportunity to show that he's more than what he's known for and um he actually just recently um sent me a message and like was talking to our producer too about he used a strat for the solo it's very unusual (laughs) to use a single coil strat metal and it gave jeff this different tone and um, I think it's probably one of my top five favorite Jeff Loomis solos easily, like completely unbiased, like has nothing to do with me. I just, his playing on it is so tasteful. And I can also hear Aaron too. That's really important to note. I can hear Aaron, our producer who has worked on Jeff Loomis's solo stuff and conquering dystopia. Um, Aaron has a very particular way to implement vibrato into things. And the way he did, I can hear it with Jeff because of how hard we worked on solos for the record for, for me as well. Um, I can hear Aaron in the solo too. And I just, I love it, man. It's just such a good thing. And Jeff is such a good dude, man. Like you and I know a lot of people in metal, there can be, there's so many different types of musicians in metal and the higher up they get, they, they change Jeff is genuinely a good person, super nice guy, and also one of the most talented musicians metal has ever had in it. And he's still somehow an amazing guy, and I find that to be so rare. Can't agree more on it, you know, or uh, you know, cannot agree more on that. I met Jeff back in the day, and he is the same dude now, and I'm so pleased. Uh, that yeah. He's- such a sweetheart. I'm sure he wouldn't like to hear us say such nice things about him because he's <laughs> Jeff Loomis, the badass, but he is such a, just a great guy. Um, yeah. But yeah, man, the whole, the whole album is great. Um, other than Filaments Dissolve, the opening track, right, which is a very fitting lead track. The record is very tight, man. No songs, no many, not many repeated, you know, too many, no, nothing seems overstayed or, you know, it seems like very carefully and thoughtfully written and composed and uh, a lot of tight song structures, which I really like. I think, you know, you can have progressive metal and you can have these different kinds of varying styles and not, you can lose the plot if you continue to go to the well of a good idea. And I think that that's one of the simplicities of the album that I really draw me in and uh i wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about songwriting and your approaches there 
Yeah. Um, so my songwriting process is a little embarrassing. I would, I, I hate to admit, um, I don't really, I, I try not to think too much. Um, I, you know, I, I did the whole theory thing, you know, I did theory in high school for two years in college and I did some of that. I've just always tried to unlearn it because I had a really important musician come into my life who was a teacher at a music school that's really well known. Tell me like, Hey, listen, learn all this stuff. And then at the end of it, forget it. Because if you focus too much on the, the math and all of the numerical things and the rules, you're going to end up creating music that has boundaries. And it really resonated with me. So with this record, when I started writing it, I, I tried desperately to shut off other, first off, I didn't listen to any other bands when I was writing this record. I refuse, I couldn't first off, cause I wrote this for, during a very difficult time, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, I wasn't listening to other bands uh, or music really in general. I wasn't watching movies. I would just wake up and write music and what came out just kind of happened very organically. I think it was, we could almost call it like musical purging, you know, like it was in me. And if I didn't get it out, I, I couldn't feel right throughout the day. And um, it came together and I, I do attribute a lot of what you hear in the cohesiveness and the flow of things to Aaron again, Aaron Smith, um, his production and his involvement was very strategic as much as, me writing the music was because Aaron and I are very connective in our dynamic. We have very similar backgrounds in terms of the music that we like. We play guitar similarly. And um, he's been a friend for quite a long time in, in a band, Seven Horn, Seven Eyes, who I've always really loved since we played with them in Seattle. And he was, he was an important role. And, and strangely enough, little side note, we were going to do this record either in Sweden. We were going to go to Sweden and record at Fascination. Um, we Wanted to record with Jens, um, who I actually just met in, um, uh, I think it was November. I went to Vegas for the URM summit and met him and it would have been really cool to work with him, but he passed it on to David Castillo. Who's amazing. He's worked on Catatonia. Um, we were going to do that. And then we were like, well, if people are like, cause a producer is much like a, um, almost kind of like a record label in that, like they want to hear your music, otherwise they're not going to record it. And since they were into it, I was like, well, damn, should we like see who else is into it? Even though they were like my number one. And then I was like, well, let's see what else happens. So I reached out to a really nice dude named Johnny Minardi, again, who I met at the summit. I just realized he was at the URM summit too. Uh, Johnny Minardi manages like Will Putney, uh, Nolly Get Good, uh, Dan Weller from Sixth. Um, reached out to Johnny about recording with Will. And because uh, I've known Will since the band started in 2004, Will Putney. Um, and uh, the time thing didn't work out. He was actually supposed to do Moon's Blood. And then um, he said, well, what about Nolly? Nolly's free. Like he would, I'll, I can show him the stuff. And he did. And Nolly liked it. And then Nolly wanted to get Dan Weller involved too. So we almost did it with either Jens or David Castillo or Nolly and Dan from Sixth. Um, I think Dan was going to fly here and then, Nolly would have mixed it, which is what he prefers to do. Um, and regardless of who we would have went with to do the record production wise, Aaron Smith was going to be involved one way or the other, either because um, he's an amazing composer. This is something a lot of people need to understand is like, I do composing for a living, but Aaron is on a different level. It's so like, I, I desperately want to push him into compose, composing because of how good he is at it. He has such a, 
an amazing way to translate his ideas into synthesizers, how to shift them, how to add plugins and make them become their own instrument, taking something like a violin or a cello and almost synthesizing it. And he was going to be involved in the record one way or the other. He was like, we, we had already planned it out in the budget. And then it just occurred to me, I'm like, the dude is such an amazing composer and an amazing engineer. You know, he did Seven Horns, Seven Eyes record and he's just so good. So let's just keep it all in one place and simplify things. And I couldn't be happier with that choice because I, I love that dude so much like as a person and it just, it flowed really well. Dude, we worked so hard on this record with him. Like he put in so much more work than he needed to do and it was just the right thing, you know, putting it all together. Killer. I'm a big Aaron fan. I'm probably a guy I need to, I haven't talked to in about maybe 10 years, but I uh, interviewed him back in the day and uh, when the band first uh, appeared and uh, that record is a beast. I think they had an EP also that he did that was great. Yeah. Uh, such a good dude. And definitely uh, it's clear to see that, you know, obviously he's had a profound effect and a good choice by you to work with him. And uh, yeah, man, keep pushing your friends to do cool shit. I think I'm a big fan of that, right? Yeah. Support your friends. He's um, so talented. Like he, he can't, he, he and John Douglas also, let me just mention something. John Douglas, who's our vocal producer on Moon's Blood, he did this record as well with Oded. John Douglas is an animal, man. Like if people don't know him, I'm hoping they at least are familiar with his name. He does a lot of work for Audio Hammer. Um, he did a lot of work for Ayala, Sukoff, Mark Lewis, but he's also just a standalone amazing engineer as well. He did uh, the Contortionist Reimagined EP, I believe. Um, he's roommates with Eric, the keyboard player, who's a great dude as well. Um, John Douglas and Aaron are both just like, I, it, honestly, it was a dream team to me. You know, like I don't need to, you know, hire people who just have some huge reputation. Like I wanted to go for the people who I think are severely underrated and deserve so much more. And you and I, you, you're in marketing. I did marketing for a long time as well. We both know it comes down to how much you market yourself these days. It's not necessarily about how good you are at something, but if you're, you're only as good as your marketing can be sometimes. And with these guys just deserve so much more. And I think they're involvement in the record is as paramount as anything else. So John Douglas is another one who I just, I owe a lot to for this. Nice, man. Love it. Love the shout outs. We'll tag everybody in their respective uh, connections in the notes here. Um, lots to talk about. Obviously, again, the songs are great. Um, and you, you touched on this briefly earlier. Obviously, this came from a very tough point in your life, lyrically and just in general, uh, how you made the record and everything. Uh, not to go down a complete rabbit hole and have you rehash everything, but if you want to just, uh, you know, kind of summarize, you know, how this all developed, obviously came from a very tough part of your life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a good starting point would be that this record would be very different right now if I didn't go through what I went through. Um, we actually wrote more songs than actually came out on the record. There's about four or five songs that didn't make it because they were way too positive sounding <laughs> like they did not fit um i think you would have been looking at more of like a um i'm trying to think of a good example i it, it was like more cinematic sounding but in, in the uplifting sense you know what i mean like hans zimmer has two different modes in my opinion he has this grandiose kind of darkness that you hear in like the dark knight rises when the whole island is isolated, which, by the way, is very apropos to right now. Um, and then there's his very hopeful element of, like, when somebody's starting to survive and come, you know, come to realization of things in, like, Interstellar or something. And 
I think we were leaning a little bit more towards the right side where it's like, oh, this is great. Things are great. We, there's positivity. We had to get rid of those songs because they were just simply way too happy sounding and uh, it just didn't flow with the record. And, who know, you know, we did record them. They, they may come out someday. But um, so, yeah, the music was very different in 2017. Um, actually, 2016, when we toured with Leprous, I started writing stuff. Um, so uh, in 2017, February uh, 21st, um, I was in a relationship with a woman who suffered from a severe case of borderline personality disorder, which is a very complex and very torturous thing to deal with. And, um, it's honestly really, um, unfortunate how many people actually have it. Um, and people don't know that and they see this person on the surface and think that their person just has these issues and it's them as a person when it's really not their fault. (laughs) And um, one of the things that's always really been tough for me, you know, like I've studied psychology quite extensively. And um, the thing that's really tough about mental health issues is that is the way that people treat it. Um, People who don't have uh, compassion for it can't see that uh, an athlete who twists their ankle or breaks their, their arm or something like that same type of injury applies to the brain as well, where people have these things about them, these injuries, so to speak. And, uh, we don't treat it that way. We treat it like there's something wrong with the person. And it's like, no, the person just needs to heal and they need help and support. And it's really important to do that. And, um, not a lot of people get that. And very unfortunately, the person I was in a relationship with, uh, Marissa, she did not have a good support system and uh, a huge part of her trauma. Um, you know, borderline it can go a couple ways. It can be hereditary, which is not super, um, prevalent in, in that community, but then there's also trauma induced. It's an outside stimuli. So like something very negative and effective can happen to a person. Like somebody could have a horrible, um, interaction at their job where they're bullied and it kind of triggers this, this imbalance. And then sure enough, there's this personality disorder that lingers from it, or it can be from a sexual trauma, a physical assault trauma. Um, it can also happen to people who just experience something very traumatic from afar, you know, like there's, it's so complicated and complex and it's constantly changing in the DSM. And it was really unfortunate that she didn't have a good support system until she met me. And, um, and I tried to be a, a good support system. I, you know, I could, could have probably been better, but like, I mean, I'm it, the thing about this, this illness is that it can be very consuming. And, um, I was consumed by it entirely. It felt like a job to me. It felt like I was working and being in a band and being a human being. And then I was also like a caretaker, so to speak. And, um, she was a very sweet human being and very nice. Just the cuts were incredibly deep. I mean, we're talking grand Canyon level deepness. And, uh, she just had a lot of trauma from her childhood and things that kind of happened within her family and different things that kind of happened to her. And it was very difficult for her. And, uh, we actually kind of split up very amicably, but like I had to keep her close by still because I knew that this was a very, um, very fragile scenario between the two of us. So I kept her very close by and, uh, she, so one day, essentially the, the way the story goes that day is she, she was struggling very, very deeply to live in her circumstance at home. And she had this 
huge amount of pressure on her to um, remove herself from the situation. And I think that burden of the pressure was put onto me to help her get out of the scenario. And um, it became kind of like I was the, the white knight. I was here to save her and all of that pressure was on me. And it just, it didn't work out. I couldn't deal with um, the constant pressure and the constant changes and a lot of things. I had to kind of respect my, my boundaries and we, we split up. And um, when that happened, I saw the fear in her eyes of like, oh no, what am I going to do? And I told her, don't worry about it. I'm going to help you out. We're going to get you through this. I will help you still. I'm not going anywhere. It's just, I need to respect myself and not be completely involved in it. And um, there came a day where she couldn't deal with it anymore. And I, and I saw her early that morning on the 21st of February, 2017. And she told me all of her fears and she cried and was terrified. And I told, I tried so hard to calm her down and I eventually did. And she went home and, um, I was meant to see her later that day and I didn't hear from her. And I, I had a really bad feeling because of the way that we left off. So I went to her house and her parents were gone and I searched throughout the whole house looking for her because she had a tendency to hide, which is kind of symptomatic for certain types of borderlines. And um, I went looking for her and I didn't see her. I went, you know, I, I rushed through the garage up, up the stairs of the basement into the house looking for her. And uh, I couldn't find her. So I was like, well, I'll get in my car. I'll keep looking for her. But as I'm going down the stairs to go back to my car into the garage, I saw her behind the door of the garage into the basement and she was hanging behind the door. And uh, my, I have an incredibly quick fight or flight type of thing. Like my impulses kicked in and I just ran straight down the stairs. I unhooked her. I laid her down. And, uh, it was tough, man. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget the details. You know, I heard the, you know, the air that was trapped underneath her from the neck down just all rushed out. And I actually had this like moment where like, I actually thought for a second, like, Oh shit. Like I caught her just in time. I'm good. And I panicked and I was like, Oh my God. So I called the cops and they, you know, advised me on how to do CPR, which I kind of remembered how to do. And it was just, it was too late. I, I must've, I saw her four hours before she must've done it maybe like an hour before I got there, they were thinking. And, um, the the hardest thing to deal with when you deal with something like that, aside from your own shit, the own, your own trauma that you deal with that is that there's a family of people who have known her a lot longer than I did. And her mom and dad had so much more investment in her than I could ever even imagine. And along with that comes a lot of questions and, you know, there, there was definitely blame put on me, which is natural. Her mom never did that. Her dad definitely did. And her dad and her relationship was very tricky and not uh, very unhealthy. Um, and her mom and I were very close. And, uh, that's probably one of the harder things to deal with is like this, this family, as much as I'm traumatized by it, her poor mom and dad, and her brother as well, who's, who's a very nice guy, uh, they didn't have a good relationship and now they can't fix that. You know, that's very difficult. And I can't, I still like have no idea how they're doing because it's been really, I had to create boundaries for myself because of a lot of things that came from it. And um, in order for me to heal, I had to, to set boundaries for myself, which I, you know, it was probably the healthiest thing I ever did. Otherwise I'd st it's still like a mystery to her mom and she's still trying to, trying to piece things together. Um, so aside from dealing with all that, you know, you, you now have this new thing. It's almost like a bomb goes off on you. And now you have to, you have these huge wounds on you that take a long time to heal. And, um, I think the hardest thing 
for dealing with discovering a loved one who's committed suicide. I mean, there's so many different ways. Like you can either just find out that a suicide happens. That's traumatic enough. Like we, like most people know somebody who's done that and it's horrible. It's like shocking and a shame. And it's just such a tragic thing. Finding the person a couple hours after is really difficult. And um, there's actually a really low survival rate of experiencing that. Like statistically, somebody who discovers the body of somebody who committed suicide, let alone it being a loved one, let alone it being that same day that you saw the person when they were alive, is very low. There's the survival rate is very low. Um, And I struggled really hard, man. Like it was... I would be trying to go to sleep. I, first off, the PTSD from it, it was monumentally difficult. Like it was weapons grade bad. Um, I would just be like walking to my door in my basement to go to my car and I would crumble before I opened the door because I had so many memories just in that basement. It was a finished basement. It was my band's studio with Marissa. And I had like all these different things in it. Like I just saw this person and they're gone now. And I just saw them and all these things. And all of those images would rush and almost kind of like mortal combat, like leg sweep me onto the ground. And, um, that was difficult and trying to go to sleep, which I think can be difficult for people, even when they're not dealing with trauma. It's like my favorite comedian on the planet, Doug Stanhope put it the best. He's like, as soon as you get in bed, and you try to go to sleep, that's when the fucking carnival kicks in. And that's exactly what would happen. And like the most negative way possible, like just, I would be blaming myself, which, you know, I've come to terms with was not my fault, obviously. And um, just so sad for her and the things that she dealt with, sad for her family, like all these things would just swell on top of me while I'm trying to go to sleep. And eventually within a week of, of dealing with this, I lost another relative. I lost my aunt Patty, um, my uncle Chuck's wife. Um, she's one of my favorite people on the planet, her sister who I love. She helped get me into college. She was an academic advisor. She was just this amazing human being. She passed away a week after Marissa passed away. And then during that same week, my aunt Debbie, who I I've been very close with since I was a baby. I mean, like she's one of my closest aunts, Uh, she passed away from lupus a week after that. So I lost three people in three weeks and like, it just, it knocked me down as hard. I like, I've never been tested so hard before in my life. And I I didn't know if I was going to make it out of it because it was just too much. Like I knew something was severely wrong and that I was in trouble when like finding out somebody passed away, like bounced off of me like rubber when I first heard about it. And then it was like later that day, I'm just like, Oh my God. And then I had this one really peculiar moment that like made me completely change my perspective of life in general. And like, whether it's I'm communicating with my subconscious or whatever, anybody wants to believe what it was I was communicating with. Um, I'm laying in bed, struggling to go to sleep because of how difficult my emotions were and like how much trauma I was going through in, in one sitting. And I just literally out loud while I'm laying in bed, I'm crying so hard, my eyeballs hurt. And I'm repeating myself almost like a mantra, like against my will. I'm saying like, please, something tell me what to do. Something's got to tell me, like, I can't ask my mom or my dad or my aunt, my uncle, my best friend, what do I do? Because they don't know, they haven't gone through this. So who else can I ask? So I'm just out loud asking essentially asking life as I like to look at it. I'm, I'm asking anything unquestionable, unknown, if there's something out there that can intervene here and help me out, steer me in the right direction. Just do it, please. Like, I don't know what else I'm going to do here. Like, I'm not going to win, you know? And, uh, 
I woke up the next morning and somehow in my brain, in the back of my brain, it said, well, why don't you write some music right now? Try, like see what happens. And there, there was no goal behind it. It was just do the music. That's what I needed to do. It didn't occur to me at that point. I couldn't watch movies or TV. It triggered me. Every little thing triggered sadness within me. And I just said, all right, well, fuck it. I'm going to go sit at the computer and write music. And I turned on my computer, put on my DAW, grabbed my guitar, and I wrote essentially what people have come to find is the song called Away With Oneself, um, which is probably the most traumatic lyrics as well. Uh, Oded wrote lyrics that basically nailed the vibe on the head. Like he was able to step into that scenario very well. And I wrote Away With Oneself. And um, it became very clear to me after I showed my bandmates, who were so good to me, by the way. Like my bandmates, uh, PJ, Oded, um, just, I had so many good people who were so good to me during this. They were there for me. And, uh, yeah, we, the songs clicked with them and I was like, shit, this is what I need to be doing then. And then it was just one song after the other came out of me. One, just one thing after the other, I was pumping out. The next song was filaments dissolved. The next song was unborn. The next, which I was feeling a ton of rage the day that I wrote unborn. Like it, that song to me is, is a, it's like a gamma ray of radiation. You know what I mean? Like it just felt exactly how I felt in that moment. And uh, the songs just, they poured out of me. And then eventually I noticed how cathartic it was and it really helped me heal and put, well, it put me on the route to healing, which took quite a long time. And I'm probably still doing it. It's still very difficult to talk about, but uh, yeah, the music came out and my bandmates were feeling it. And um we did, uh, I finished a whole pre-production's worth of, of an album and had it all ready to go. I had about an hour and 15 minutes of music written. And uh, then we redid the record um, as, a, as a group. We did pre-production further. We did live drums. Uh, Austin recorded live drums. Um, at my job that I worked at, I was a creative dr- and marketing director for a musical instrument company. We recorded in the Performing Arts Center. We did drums for it. We recircled and revisited the songs. And then we recorded the album about three months later. And uh, the album is just 1,000% a testimony to feeling all the shit that I just talked about, like knowing how, like, I shouldn't have survived that. I shouldn't have made it through it. And, and I've never known anybody to go through what I went through and survive it. I don't know anybody who's been through that personally. And I now have this record that's a, a testament to... Yeah, you, you can make it through it. You just have to find that way to deal with what's going on with you. And it's not always going to just be talking to somebody, a therapist who doesn't know you. And it's not going to be talking to family and crying and abusing alcohol. Like, I don't have any of that shit. That's the hardest part about me is I don't have vices. I, they don't exist for me. If anything, my vices is working too hard. Like, I, I will push myself to work instead of acknowledging how I'm feeling about things sometimes. And... <laughs> not having alcohol or drugs and all those different things um, made it really difficult to find the solution. And the solution ended up being this record, you know, and, and that's why ultimately I would have been fine if the record never came out. I wouldn't have cared if anybody heard it. It, it needed to happen and I didn't have a choice. It wasn't written for anybody else, for, for, but for me. And it became very clear eventually, especially at this juncture, that this record is also going to serve as a huge tool for people who do struggle 
to find a voice or a method of coping with the issues that they have. And they can see that I've been there and you're not alone. That's and the, that, that's the story. That's probably the first time I've gone into full detail about it since God knows when. Wow. Well, you know, first of all, I'm deeply sorry that you went through all that. I'm sorry for her family. I'm sorry for the world that lost, you know, like no person with, uh, you know, emotional issues and mental illness is the sum of those issues. They are a whole person beside that. And we probably lost a really cool person from the world. And I too have had, uh, you know, suicide in my life, including a former member of Ghost Cult, which was really, I'm still not over it. Um, So, um, that's That's so sad. Yeah. You never really recover for her parents. The the pain must be unbearable and the questions are never ending. I'm really sorry. I'm glad you made it through, at least up to this point. And I'm, I, you know, I'm glad that you're able to kind of channel that pain into this work. I do find the album strangely uplifting and uh, I do feel better <laughs> having listened to those songs. And I relate completely because, again, uh, maybe not directly the exact events, but I've been there and I feel it, you know, and I've lost friends and met several friends on top of that. So uh, beside the one close to me. So, you know, it happens. And um, what. You yeah. Do, and that's you know, what, I, that's why this record matters, because you right. were able to relate to it, you know, and yeah, that's what I, I want. You know, I want people to know that, like this happened. It's, it's tragic that this happens to people, you know, and, um, there, this is going to be a little bit of a controversial thing to say, but Marissa had a, it was a very hard life, man. There was not a lot of happiness there on the surface. It may have appeared that way sometimes, but like, it was a lot of her sinking. This is like the shittiest reference ever, but, and this is the only thing I could think of in my brain to like completely reference it, but there's, I don't know if you ever played Fallout, but like sometimes you can go into the water in Fallout and like if you stay under too long, you start losing your breath and you can die if you don't come up. And like I felt like I was constantly jumping in the water, pulling her out of the water and then like she was happy and fine in those moments. And then it was like just a matter of time before she would keep going under. And like the saddest thing about it is like she tried therapy and she tried medication and she tried all these different things but ultimately there was just like I think the cuts were like on such a complex and deep level like a, like a da Vinci code level of complications with her um, and I, I don't know that she'd be happier right in this moment I really don't know it's hard to tell because I was helping her every single day that I could. I would go to therapy with her on days where she didn't want to go. I'd be like, well, I'll go with you, you know, because she was terrified of the outside world. You know, she was afraid everybody was going to hurt her or out to do something. And I would go with her and it just seemed like it was just a matter of time before she would sink, you know? And like, I hate to say that like sometimes maybe some somebody doesn't want to deal with that, that hurt, you know, and maybe it's too much, you know, like how much does somebody need to suffer until it's okay you know, I, sorry to reference Doug Sandhope again. He's just, aside from like one of my favorite comedians, I love him as a person. Um, he had this thing where it's like, you know, if you're watching a movie and you know it's going to suck, you can leave. You know, you can walk out of that shitty movie. If it just, the it's an hour in and you're just like, this fucking movie sucks. Like, get up and leave, you know? Like, that should be a person's choice, you know? It's a really controversial thing to say, but you know, walk a mile in their shoes and see how you feel at the end of the day. It's a really tough thing. I I can't say for for sure how somebody would feel today if they were still here, you know, but, uh, it's, it's a very sad thing to deal with for all of us. And it's selfish to think that, you know, I would rather her be here and trying to work on things, but 
it is what it is. You know, it's, it's a game of life. I got battle armor now. I'll tell you that. Nice. Yeah, I can go through sure. some shit. <laughs> yeah. You've seen some shit, my brother. And, yeah. uh, without going down a keefy rabbit hole of a soapbox, this is a, a prime example of why we need to change our approach and change our respect and change everything we do regarding mental health and well-being mm-hmm. in this country from the top down to the human level. And, um, you know, again, my I just my heart goes out to you. I'm I'm thrilled to have this music, and I'm glad you're in a one piece and you're thriving in your career, which we can also talk about in a few. But I'm just thankful that you're okay, and I'm I'm grieve you know existentially for her friends, family, brother, parents. How terrible and how sad. But thank I'm you know I do like you know I like the silver lining of the album as a way of your own way to work through things, and you know. I, I, you know, I hope over time it gets easier. It really hasn't for me, but I hope for you it has, or it will. Yeah. I mean, it's, everybody deals with things in varying degrees. Um, I think I was just handed a game genie from life. Basically there, you know, life was like, here's a game genie. And then I put it in and I was like, Oh, write music. And I'll start feeling better at least to a certain degree. I think I'm very lucky. And, um, there, there, somewhere out there, in this darkness of each person, including yourself is there's a shelf out there with the solution to helping you heal up from this stuff. And you're going to find it eventually. Like it's probably a lot closer to you now than you think, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, you got to navigate, find it somehow. And eventually you're going to get there and you're going to see that shelf and you're gonna be able to get on the ladder and go up and grab that shit. And when you take it down, all of a sudden you're going to start feeling some resolution from it. It's just, finding that shelf is the hard part, you know? Indeed. Uh, one last album point to segue to awkward segue 18 of this conversation. You're great by the way, but uh, we've established <laughs> this before. I really love talking to you and I appreciate your, it, thought, not your thoughts on a lot of stuff that that was one of my favorite podcasts we've done in a long time. The one with you on dumb and dumbest. So I appreciate Thank you, you so I much. I appreciate this time with you. Um, Fade into you by Massey star. Uh, complete left turn uh, conversation. Fantastic. First of all, Jesus and Mary Chain, Hope Sandoval, uh, amazing band, amazing song, amazing band beyond that one hit single, but what a song to cover. And (laughs) and so let's talk about like why fade into you and what a great job. Um, All right. Yeah. No. Well, thank you very much. Um, First off, that song goes way back for me. Um, My dad bought that record. I used to go visit. I, I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I was born in New Jersey originally, but I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico with my grandmother and my mom. And I would go home over the summer and visit my dad. And my dad has the most amazing music taste fucking ever. It's mind blowing. My dad's 64 years old in June. And like, he turned me on a porcupine tree in absentia, like fuck, 20 years ago. Like he's so ahead of the curve. He's always been obsessed with music since he was a kid and like King Crimson back in the day, like all the cool shit. <clears throat> and he played this rec- that that record, the Mazzy star record when it first came out in the car on the, taking me home to the airport, which by the way, that is such a fucked up move, by the way, like to put on fade into you when you're driving me to the airport. And I'm going to be super sad that I'm leaving my dad and my dad's side of the family. Like, I don't think he knew <laughs> that that was going to happen, but he put on Mazzy star fade into you comes on. And I just fucking started crying like a little baby, man. I must've been like six or seven years old when it came out and I, and this happened and like that song stuck with me. And then 
sure enough, I, to get an extra dose of like the, a little extra added trauma, the use of fade into you in Starship Troopers like yes. wrecked me, man. <laughs> what? Like how weird is that? But they used yes. that in that movie and it's, it ripped. It totally worked. And oh man, that, that fight. And also that scenario. I think a lot of us have been in that scenario where you kind of feel this tug of war between, you know, you like this girl and you're with, like, I can't, I've, I've never been in this situation, but I'm sure a lot of people have been in that situation where you're with this woman that you love and then you have to see that woman with somebody else. And like, then there's this jealousy and this fight and then you play faded you. It's like, what are you doing to my feelings, guys? These, these are some spicy onions. <laughs> um, so anyway, so Oded and I talked about doing a cover ZP, um, to accompany Memento Mori. And, um, we were going to cover, um, Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel did this really cool video that Oded showed me where they just spin around in the video and they sing to one another. And it's like one of the fucking most amazing songs. I love Kate Bush and Peter Gabriel. Um, we were going to cover that, uh, before Dolores died. Um, we were going to do a cover of the cranberries. We were going to do, uh, linger. Uh, we actually did record some pre-production for it. Um, but we decided I'm not, this is no judgment of other bands. This is just a personal philosophy. I don't like writing on the coattails of somebody's death. And I didn't want to do a cover of um, the Cranberries, which is what would have ended up on the record, oddly enough. Um, she passed away and I didn't want to be on that coattail. You know, it, it, it wouldn't have felt like a tribute. And that's what should be done when somebody passes away is you're paying tribute. You're not trying to get views and clicks. It's just such a shitty materialistic thing, in my opinion. That's just my thing. So we decided not to do it. But we wanted to do Fade Into You as well. And we were going to do Paradise Lost. We were going to do, um, I can't remember the name of the song. It's the, the video of the girl. She's getting her head shaved and it's clearly about abuse. Yes. Um, yeah, ama amazing song. Holy shit. Yeah, what sure. a fucking amazing video. Um, and then we were going to do A Perfect Circle. And we were going to do probably Mudvayne. We're not too sure. But um, so we were going to do all these things. And uh, when we, I was <laughs> what a driving collection home, of songs, by the way. I know. Wow. Well, they're all very influential on us, you know, all, especially right. Mudvayne on me. Um, so I was driving home from work one day, thinking about the record. I called Oded and I said, hey, dude, what about putting Fade Into You onto the record? Because it just seems like it fits, you know? It's got acoustic, which the record has about 75% acoustic. You know, I don't know the math. I don't know why I said that number. But yeah, there's a lot of acoustic on the record. Almost all of the album has acoustic guitars on it. And it's such a dour and sad sounding fucking song. Like I, you know, doing more research on the song after that moment, I realized how fitting it was. And um, didn't, didn't do pre-production for it. We just bit the bullet and did it and it came together so fucking well i'm so happy with it like aaron had some really cool ideas you know like the song actually goes into eight string territory but in, in a pseudo sense we uh use this thing called a uh, electroharmonics poly octave generator and it you can we actually used it quite a bit on the record unborn is the same thing where we can play higher strings but it sounds lower and um we hit like e zero on a piano which is the lowest note you can go for e on a piano and we had some really low notes on it and collectively as a whole it just came together and like Oded's harmonies like there's some moments where it sounds like he's singing with Hope Sandoval and like I've always had a crush on her since I was a little kid too like she's just she falls in that that lane of type the type of person that I like a brooding and kind of emotionally intelligent person who's got a beautiful voice and yeah it just if it, it worked man I'm really happy with that cover too and it seems to be um 
people who who get Mazzy Star also get our record, so it seems to have worked out quite well. Amazing. And uh, shout out and rest in peace to Dave Roback, who wrote that song. Yes. Ringleader, oh created Mazzy Star for Hope, yeah. and was the ringleader of that band. Did a lot of that. Amazing. If you love those riffs and you love that slide and you love that it's almost like i'm sure there's like a a, a, a layer of evo guitar on there probably absolutely yes there's, there's a lot of little things going on re-listen to that album re-listen to that song respect to you guys for pulling off that great cover thank you um if there was justice in this world you would get known for all your music but <laughs> it, it would be funny or ironic or i don't know what but it'd be interesting if that cover so, somehow got out there and was a uh a thing for you guys because it's worth it. <laughs> and people should hear it. Well, I appreciate that. Man, you know, who knows? You know, I I would love to hear what Hope Sandoval thinks about it, even though I'm sure she gives no fucks whatsoever. <laughs> I'm sure she probably doesn't want to hear that song ever again. Ever uh, again, I know. So tragic sounding, and he was such an amazing writer. Yeah, for sure. And she's wonderful. She's. They are much more of a band than that song. Right. Um, anywho, as we wind this down. Uh, I do wanted to just briefly touch on some of your composing work because we have sure. unpacked that a little bit before in the past and I, I'm fascinated by this stuff. So what I wanted to ask about, you do a lot of composing for Marvel Entertainment and uh, animated Marvel stuff. And uh, we've, what I'm interested in is what do you get from composing as a songwriter that you could not have in binary code? Oh, that's a good question. Um <laughs> Well, so the thing, that's actually a good question. And I actually can tell you right away. The first thing is that I think music for media, like when it's composed for a soundtrack or something, or if it's backing music or something, I think it becomes a bit of an afterthought for people when they hear it. Like somebody will see one of the animations and like, um, maybe like Marvel has a very devout following so i'm trying to think of like the numerical quantity of it but it's like so let's say marvel posts an animation that i compose for and it gets a million views on instagram or something and it gets like you know fourteen thousand comments on it maybe a hundred of them actually give a shit about the music um whereas like if you go listen to music and it's a music video <laughs> they're going to either comment on the music video or they're going to talk about the music so it's I have to create with more purpose and also knowing that it's doing its job, which is very different than how I've approached music in the past, which is to create music as a feeling. Um, I still do that with my composing, which is why I think it works. But I also think that there's a job to do. I have to do, I have a, a purpose here and um, it's much more deliberate and um, thought thoughtful and it's very contrived. Um, it's not just like, I feel like writing music today. It's like, nope, this has to get done. And this is how it has to sound. And it's very methodical. So it's, it's um, an afterthought for a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people give a shit um, about music when they see it. I, I, my appreciation for music and media has changed drastically. I can't even see a commercial advertisement on Instagram without thinking about the guy who's spent you know two days perfecting that song so it can be in a five dollar sound library to be used on a youtube ad you know like i i think about music very differently now so um it's a much different different world man i mean like being in a band is very gratifying when you have fans who appreciate you and you can get to that point as a composer but um i think that for me i 
in a band sense, I like the connection between me and the fans, which I, which I talked about before. I love people who express themselves to me because I will actually talk to somebody who appreciates what I do because it means they're appreciating who I am as a person. So I have so many friends who started out as fans of the band, like my friend, um, Andrew McNada, he's in a band called 100,000. I met him and one of my closest friends, Dejan, who now lives in China, strangely enough, and he's scared for us somehow. Um, I met them at a show of ours. We played a, a, sh- a show for uh, CMJ uh, years ago and they were fans and they're like two of my favorite people on the planet now. And it's, they were fans, you know what I mean? Like I'm happy to do that because they get me. And with composing, you're not going to get that. Um, it's, it's a bit more surface and uh, you're doing a job and it's serving a purpose, but ultimately the music is elevating the f- visual representation. That's the purpose of it. It acts as a pillar. Whereas with music, your music is the standalone foundation of everything. So um, yeah, I don't know. Does that actually make sense? Any of what I just said? <laughs> it makes perfect sense. Okay. And uh, I definitely asked a little bit of an obtuse question and you handled <laughs> it well. So I really appreciate okay, you. Good. <laughs> Um, this album is fantastic. Memento Mori by Binary Code. Jesse, you're amazing. I really appreciate your time. I cannot recommend this record enough. Uh, everything about the music, everything about it that went into it. Uh, the album cover by Eleron Cantor is fantastic. Oh, yes. Thank he you. He just did uh, Testament and Havoc, and this is like one of his many album covers that we will see. Thanks so much, pal, and uh, the best to you and the best of luck with this record. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for all this, and I hope you... Uh find your way with everything too. And if you ever want to talk, hit me up, man. Thank you. We need this. We need this. We need to be there for each other. Absolutely. And uh, I'm sure we're going to connect again soon about many things. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Thanks for checking out today's podcast. Follow, like, and subscribe wherever you hear these podcasts. Also check out Ghost Cult Magazine on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And finally check us out at ghostcultman.com. We're out. Peace.